Our next speaker is Mr. Mick Wallace. Madness. madness. This is madness. We cannot fix a problem caused by capitalism with more capitalism. They hurt the people. I ended up at the end of a gun. On three occasions. I don't well to survive anyway. Madame Daly will speak. A union which allows fiscal rules to be broken for arms expenditure, not for housing or to put roofs over the heads of people. This is evidence of police violence. Whether you're an economic migrant or you're an asylum seeker, nobody deserves to be treated like this. And even having the neck to suggest separating people from their mothers. How dare you? Okay, how are you all doing? Um, listen, uh, we have a bit, a bit of uh, an unusual uh, setup today. Um, we've uh, we got a guy called uh, Justin Porter. Um, uh, on the line, and he's an associate professor at York University's Faculty of Environmental and uh, Urban Change. Uh, he's the author of several books, the most recent being America's War on Democracy in Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of Congo. He runs an excellent podcast called the Anti-Empire Project uh, podcast, and he writes for the Independent Media Institute's Globetrotter Project, where he has recently published an article called India's right-wing government is so hungry for profit it will risk a famine for the country. The subject of which is what we would uh, like to talk about today. So, Justin, the, the India's right-wing government is so hungry for profit it will risk a famine for the country. Explain. The article was written uh, about the farmers' protests that have been going on in India uh, since December of last year. Uh, and the protests are around uh, three bills that were passed in uh, India, in the Indian uh, government, uh, the Indian parliament, um, <laughs> all of which are named as you would expect <laughs> for such dangerous legislation. One is called the Farmers Produce Trade and Commerce Promotion and Facilitation Bill, <laughs> uh, the, essential, <laughs> the Essential Commodities Amendment Bill. And the Farmers Empowerment and Protection Agreement on Price Assurances and Farm Services Bill. Chrome. So, <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, you guys are lawmakers. You know uh, what's up. So the the first one, the Farmers Produce Trade and uh, Commerce Promotion and Facilitation. This basically bypasses um, the local uh, agricultural produce marketing committees that states can have uh, to basically guarantee... Uh, a minimum price and government procurement for uh, farmers. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what each of these bills do, and then I'll tell you what my fears were that I wanted to express in the article. The Essential Commodities Amendment Bill amends a, a bill, uh, a law from 1955, which does not allow private, uh, basically wholesalers, retailers to stockpile agricultural produce. Only farmers were allowed to do that until until this bill was passed. Now private um, produce marketers can stockpile, um, which is bad for reasons I'll get into. And then finally, uh, Farmers Empowerment and Protection Agreement on Price Assurance and Farm Services Bill basically says that farmers and uh, buyers are free to enter into contracts, basically, um, that, you know, the government is not going to interfere. Uh, so it's all in the name of freedom, right? 
<laughs> what, who's against freedom? So farm, basically farmers are now allowed to enter into contracts with, um, with buyers that have vastly more market power over them, uh, which is, you know, ideal for the buyers and not so ideal for the farmers. Um, the ability to stockpile further empowers buyers relative to farmers. And then the, the getting rid of government procurement basically means the farmer has nowhere else to go. So ultimately, um, all of these protections that were put in place to protect Indian uh, people from famine and to protect Indian farmers from ruin are being swept away, which is the reason uh, for these protests that have gone on through the entire winter <laughs> and spring is coming and the, the farmers have stayed on through the, a very cold winter in India and, uh, and the reason for some of the biggest yeah, protests in the world. Um, because farmers are very aware that whatever the hype is, uh, this is this this bill means uh, ruination for millions of them. Um, how how powerful are the farmers, and what are the chances of their strikes uh, having an impact or forcing a change of mind on the part of the Modi government? I think, before, and before you answer that, Justin, I mean, in your article, you described it as a kind of a, a watershed moment for the Modi government. And reading uh, the article, it was sort of that this could refashion politics in, in India. And it kind of reminded me of the sort of nearly Thatcher standoff with the miners. Is it that significant? Because people over here might understand that scenario a bit more clearly that it is such a defining moment. Yeah. I think it is. I think it is because what Modi has done since 2014 has been very, very successful um, in the sense that um, the, the idea of, and I think Thatcher was like this too. Uh, you guys know more about Thatcher than me, but, um, you know, he go, they go after minorities, uh, kind of demonizing minorities. Um, India is a giant country with lots and lots of minorities, so you hardly ever run out of a supply. But but Modi has targeted Kashmir. There was a a big move they made where they you know read down articles of the constitution that guaranteed Kashmir autonomy. They changed the citizenship rights. Uh, they, they did a citizenship amendment act um, that Muslims uh, you know strongly protested just before the pandemic. Um, there was demonetization. There's just a series of really big radical moves that were protested, but not to this extent and not um, as, yeah, as powerfully in as much numbers or in as much um, determination. And so uh, this one, you know, simultaneously, it's it's targeting farmers, which is like 60% of the Indian, you know, economy, the Indian people are involved in agriculture one way or another. Um, but uh, there's a particular kind of targeting and demonization of Punjab um, and the Sikh uh, community, which... Um, you know, is a minority uh, in a way, but it is also, it's not like quite as easily isolated. There are lots of Sikhs in the army, <laughs> um, you know, so there's a lot of like, this is not patriotic. And then the farmers would show like photos of all their sons that are in the army, you know, uh, at the border with Pakistan or whatever. 
so it's not like uh, it's not easy to paint them as you know uh, foreign uh, you know agitators or you know anti-national or whatever which Modi really likes to do um, so yeah and then and the the so yeah it's it's really important it it, it was immensely um, you know the the protests were staggering in size and scale uh, at the beginning and now it's a matter of staying power because the media in India, like everywhere, is very compliant, very pro-regime. Uh, so, you know, it's it's been difficult over a period of months now to uh, sustain a level of public interest in the protest. But it's, you know, they're in Delhi, they're around Delhi. Um, yeah, and they're not, they have no, they're not, there's no signs that they're giving up or being co-opted or anything like that. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's still a standoff. Uh, what what sort of numbers were involved uh, in striking first, and what kind of numbers are involved now? Oh well, it started with a strike, right? The before just before the farmer protest, there was like a an all India strike, a general strike uh, that was I, I guess a day or a couple of days long, which was, you know, the biggest strike in human history and bef since the last Indian strike, which was also the biggest strike in human history. I think that one was in 2015. Uh, so yeah, that was, you know, hundreds of millions of people. Now I would say it's, you know, it's probably, it's, it's probably like many, many thousands of people, um, still like at the camps. Um, but yeah, it's not, it's not, it's no longer like hundreds of millions, but I think, um, you know, we could see other big days of action. There have been big protests in other states as well, right? Like they did a human chain in Kerala, which is far from Delhi. It's uh, the, the Southwest. That's where my family's from, actually. Um, that was like, again, millions of people, uh, you know, holding hands, <laughs> making a human chain to protest uh, these farm bills. So there's a... Uh, yeah, it's it's big and uh, you know it's a real it's a real um, yeah it's a real watershed moment. It's a real test of uh, the government's power and support compared to you know its ability to isolate individual constituencies from each other and kind of pick them off. And isn't it incredible, given the scale of the movement, the lack of coverage really of it? in the Western media. I mean, reading your article, you were making the point that Modi operates says, oh, there's nothing wrong with these measures. This is just about modernisation. We're just trying to, you know, increase production and it's all good, guys. Nothing to worry about here. But that's actually masking uh, a serious attempt at wealth transfer. Like, is this about crushing the influence of the farmers in a way? And in that sense, it's kind of like the British uh, miners. And, you know, that that's what do you think his chances of success are like in that context is one argument and, and before I forget it because it was interesting I mean your article is about famine in India and we have obviously had a famine in Ireland as well so it's that's a huge thing like it's not just a word that you would use idly and you made the points that the agrarian problems are rooted in British colonialism, which is something that we would be familiar with as well. But maybe exploring that a little bit, I think, would be very um, educational, I think. Yeah, I mean, the famine in Ireland, the famines in India were, you know, enacted by the same people. 
uh, in the same interests. They were uh, rationalized by the same political economists. Um, it was the same program. It was basically commodity uh, food. It was basically turning an agricultural system that was based on you know, subsistence that was based on farmers, uh, you know, producing for themselves and uh, selling to make a living, to earn their livelihood, uh, into a system where they produce for the market what the market wants, when the market wants it, and if they don't like what they get from the market, then too bad, right? And some years it's too bad, and in those years they just die. And, uh, you know, the, the, political economists of the period, whether it was like John Stuart Mill or whoever it was, uh, they were Malthus, right? Edward O'Boyle. No, not Edward O'Boyle. Edward O'Boyle wrote about it well, but he was writing about um, these guys, Ricardo, Malthus, um, and they would just say, you know, maybe there's too many people. <laughs> you know, and and then it would be like a stable agricultural system that had managed to feed a society for thousands of years or hundreds of years. Suddenly, there's too many people, right? Um, and uh, and so in a like post independence India, that that was exactly the scenario they needed to. The, every policy in post independence India was let us never get into that situation of famine again. So let's make sure that farmers aren't ruined. The trouble with agriculture is if you have really good crops everywhere, then the price goes down and the farmers are ruined anyway. Um, if you have bad crops, well, then people starve. So you need uh, the government to step in and say, okay, when it's bad crops, we're going to, you know, we're going to buy grain from wherever or we're going to use our stored uh, grain. If it's good crops, we're going to mop up the surplus guarantee a minimum price for the farmer and so they keep agriculture going they keep the farmers going and they keep uh, the food supply stable so uh, every every step in that process is an opportunity for private interests to make profits right they can if they can stockpile if they can uh, squeeze the farmer for a lower price they can charge the consumer a higher price, and the 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 you know the most ridiculous aspect of this is that the Modi government is saying this is going to cut out the middleman. Actually, the whole point of this is to empower the middleman so that the middleman can make large profits off of uh, you know both sides of this thing by by strategically hoarding, um, by you know strategically exporting. And they have no, the government will have no ability, state governments will have no ability to uh, buffer that. So yeah, it's it's like the, the last time <laughs> in history when the free market was allowed to run rampant, when corporate, you know, private interest, the East India Company or, you know, the equivalent in Ireland was running rampant, that's what happened. Famine happened. And so, you know, they're, they're, they're saying, look, we're, if there's a famine, we'll override all this. But it's like, <laughs> you know, by then it might be too late, first of all. And second of all, um, what what's the point then? Is the point to keep people on the edge of famine, you know, at the, as close to the edge of famine as possible for and, and still make a make a profit or, you know, at the agricultural economy needs state intervention. It does not work. Um, you know, it works, uh, you know, in an ideal year if every year. Uh, yields were the same if the weather and climate didn't change maybe but the way agriculture works in the real world mm. it doesn't it doesn't work this way 
Yeah, and uh, on that point, uh, Justin, um, obviously, um, if they if they go to a point where they're actually producing for the market rather than to feed themselves and uh, to sell a bit uh, to pay for other commodities, uh, they would be competing, obviously, uh, I'm sure, with the, the likes of the US and the EU uh, who subsidise agriculture to the hilt. And uh, given uh, the situation in India, uh, we... Uh, we you would hardly be expecting uh, the same level of subsidy to be going towards the Indian farmers to compete with the likes of the big buyers. Well, uh, on the issue, you, you made a very interesting comparison uh, with what Modi is up to with what happened in Canada, which is really interesting. When you, you talked about the privatisation of the Canadian Wheat Board back in only 2012 under uh, Stephen Harper at the time when he was in power, uh, was it very similar uh, in Canada? And, I mean, was it the manner in which the right-wing government in Canada uh, done away with, 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 a, with a, a, the safety net for farmers in Canada? Was it very similar to yeah. India? There are many differences, and I've been reminded of them by, you know, agricultural economists, including the one that I talked to, uh, Ian... Ian McCreary. Um, but what the similarities are also m m many. So the wheat board was created um, in like in between the two world wars in Canada, again, to to make sure that the supply of grain strategic uh, commodity was um, was guaranteed. Uh, the wheat board ended up um, being built into this thing that really benefited the farmers because the farmers, uh, they had what was called a single desk. So it was this, um, the farmers, you, uh, the buyers would have to get their, their wheat from the wheat board, full stop. So the wheat board, they can set one price and that's the, that's the price that um, farmers are guaranteed. They have that stability. They know what they're going to get. They can make their plans. They can get their loans. They can make their investments knowing what they're going to get right um and so in that and then that was all that whole infrastructure the elevators everything were just basically handed over to a private um consortium it was like a saudi canadian venture um you know so when saudi when saudi arabia and canada get together you know yeah. it's never gonna be good like yemen you know yeah. yemen has suffered a lot from that uh, alliance for example um so uh so yeah, the, the, it's, a, it's a system that was designed to protect farmers. It guaranteed them a price. It guaranteed them a lot of bargaining power facing their buyers. And it was privatized um, in the name of making farmers' lives uh, better. And it absolutely did not do that. So in, that, in all of those ways, it's, it's very analogous. Um, also, the name of the, <laughs> the bill, this one was called in Canada, the Marketing Freedom for Grain Farmers Act. <laughs> so again whenever when you see that word freedom you run exactly, <laughs> you just exactly. you turn and you yeah. run as fast as you can yeah they, they hate us for our freedoms yeah <laughs> yeah yeah that's yeah. right that's right our marketing yeah. freedom for grain farmers yeah so uh I, yeah again like i i know um you know i like you guys i have the i, I really want to know if the farmers are gonna win <laughs> You know, that's the most important question. And of course, we just don't know. Um, that's the one thing I, I wish I could say for sure is going to happen. But, well, you know, uh, the other thing. That, yeah, mm, go ahead. No, go ahead, Justin. Sorry. 
the the other thing that you know Indian uh, commentators and and leftists like to do is they watch the local elections really carefully. So it's like, oh well, if the if the you know Modi's party, the BJP, if they lose uh, in some local election somewhere, that might be a bellwether of the fact that they're possibly losing their. Uh, support but you know it's a long time between now and the next uh you know all india election so it's the they're gonna have to get him to back down before that i think um and there's no doubt i mean there's a huge amount uh, at stake i was looking at some of the percentages in your article which put the issues in really serious context that actually 25% of all the hungry people in the world live in India. My God, nearly 200 million people undernourished. And, you know, you make the point like that thousands of people uh, a day are dying of malnutrition. It's absolutely, And yet this is one of the world's most important economies. And Mick made the point on our podcast last week that it's something that's becoming big in the EU because of trade and because of the EU wanting to get in on the act. But here we have a huge population without really much discussion in the West about what's going on socially and economically. And probably back in India, them going on saying, oh, look at production of uh, agriculture and industry in, in Europe and America. We want... To be like that, even though the social and environmental consequences of, you know, Western agriculture are not being examined and need to be tackled. So there's so much at stake here. I think it's it's huge. And there's no doubt India is going to be much more of a talking point. Yeah, there's so many differences um, between India and Europe or North America, like the number of what's the percentage in in Europe of people involved in agriculture it's probably less than 10 it's like in Canada in North America I think it's like 2% or something it's it's mm. um, in, I, in Europe today I'd say it's definitely under 4 mm. Yeah, right. So yeah. in India, it's 60. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Incredible. so it's just, mm-hmm. it, you know, the idea that you're going to get 58% of the population, what are they, they're all going to go to the city and get jobs? Like, what when COVID happened, we had the largest um, migration from urban to rural in human history, right? There's all these firsts in human history going on in India all the time. But, you know, all these people who were who left their villages to work in the city suddenly, you know, were told, you go to your go back to your village. So they all just like started walking back to their villages during COVID, right? Um, Because there's no way to make a living in this, you know, in the city under COVID. Like you can't, you can't, you know, if you can't sell stuff on the street, if you can't, go to a workplace so they they're all back you know they've all had to go back to their villages which is a sign that you know the the urban the rural to urban migration that the world bank and imf encourages all over the world including india is unsustainable and like the first the first emergency means everybody's you know running back to the countryside so the the idea that you can just turn the majority of people into some kind of surplus because you want to have a, an agriculture system like Canada or the U.S. or or Europe, and you know that's never gonna happen. And even and then and then we get to the question that even if it could happen, it's not desirable. Like <laughs> agriculture in Europe and North America is dysfunctional, right? It's totally it's subsidized and it's uh, you know it's ecologically unsustainable. 
it's horrible on animals, <laughs> you know, it's genetically modified, it's, it's cause yeah, the, the value chain is totally screwed up where it makes more sense to market these processed foods that aren't really foods, you know, that's probably a slightly bigger problem in North America than it is in Europe, but, you know, I'm sure it's getting there too. Mm. Um, so. You mentioned Yemen, Justin. Um, it was interesting that something something similar went on there. Um, when the IMF and World Bank uh, moved in with the Saudi and US support, um, uh, when, when Saudi was in power, uh, they actually almost forced the farmers to stop producing foods that they've been producing for for their lifetime and they forced them to produce for export and they've done so and Yemen was one of the most self-sufficient countries on the planet for feeding themselves and they've forced them to a situation now where in actual fact they have become dependent on imports in, in the yeah. last and while. There's a, yeah. mm. And there's a famine there. There's yeah. a famine. Yeah. They say it's because of the war, but it's, you know, none of these things are separable, right? Like Yemen, like that's, yeah, I'm glad you, you went into that, Mick, because uh, Yemen is, people think like, oh, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, desert, right? But Yemen is like an incredibly productive agricultural country. Um, it's always been. And like, you know, people don't people don't understand that because yeah, they just think you know they they just have like an idea of like Arabia, right? Like camels and, <laughs> and sand. Yeah. Um, so if yeah. if it reaches a point though where the Modi government get their way and the Indian farmers start producing more for the market rather than for themselves. Uh, who would you foresee being the main buyers of the food? Uh, I, I'm, my, 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 other, my other point, given that uh, while China is a massive market, one of the big reasons why the EU has become very interested in India and why the US is becoming more interested in India is as a, a tool against China. So I, I, would, would I be right in suspecting that China wouldn't be seen as uh, one of the markets for the food? And where do you think it would go? Okay, yeah, these are really good questions. So um, the I should clarify that the, you know, the farmers that are protesting are very much like integrated into the market economy. What we're talking about is like the floor. The floor is being taken out from under them. So, uh, you know, they, they're happy to sell to, they, right now they often sell to the market. Um, they, you know, they often sell to private buyers, but they have the so-called MSP. They have the so the minimum support price. So in a really bumper crop year, they they use that because the private buyers don't want to buy at that price. So it's these kinds of protections, um, you know, like welfare, uh, like a welfare state or a minimum wage, that the that um, the these bills are taking away. Um, so as for who's gonna. Who's going to buy uh, the surplus? I mean, the idea is more like um, the control over it. So it's, it's you know, the idea, like U.S., the European Union, they, they want India to get rid of these supports, to get rid of these systems so that they can more easily say, you know what, something is going on in Brazil where there's a frost and we can't grow vanilla or whatever and we want you to grow it in India. 
and farmers won't easily switch uh, unless they have that gun to their head saying, if you don't switch, you know, there's no, there's no, you're not going to get a good price for your, uh, the thing you're growing now. So to be able to just integrate India into this, like just in time, which again is a fantasy for agriculture because it, it takes time to grow things. But, um, you know, to this kind of just in time global, like we, something goes wrong here, we use it there um, system. Uh, and squeeze, you know, more and more uh, profits out of it. And then who is the, who are who is in a position to do that? Um, you know, the Indian protests, or, uh, the farmers' protests, the farmers, I mean, uh, have named uh, the people that they think are going to do that. And it's basically Modi's closest uh, multi-billionaire allies from the Adani group and the Ambani group. It's basically like these big families from Gujarat that are India's wealthiest men, <laughs> you know, and they want to get in. Uh, and, and of course, like, if you're talking about monopoly, uh, you know, monopoly power over a market, of course, it's going to be these giant industrial groups that um, are already exert massive power. <laughs> including the power to compel cricketers. <laughs> I don't know if you guys saw this, but there was like a day. So Rihanna tweeted about the farmers' protests and then... Um, hmm. uh, Fair the play, whole... I didn't know that. Yeah, go on. <laughs> yeah, so, so Rihanna tweeted about them and, and then, you know, all the Modi people in India just lost their minds. <laughs> and they, uh, they like, uh, there was like an organized day where every famous cricket player in India did a tweet saying, you know, people like Rihanna should stay out of <laughs> India's domestic God, shame on them I really like the Indian cricket team God that's, I've gone right off them now at this stage yeah but uh, you know the, the footballers uh, the soccer players they uh, they stayed strong Fair play. I'll make you make of... me delighted with that one then. You, can, you can't corrupt the soccer players. Oh, God, you can. Yeah. No. I can name a few. <laughs> yeah. Come here, in your last couple of minutes, Justin, on this invitation, because I think we'll be having you back. You've explained it really well, but you made the point and we think you're right. You know, India isn't going to be transformed into Western agriculture. That isn't going to happen. But a lot of people are going to get damaged in the efforts to make it so. Just is there a, is there a political representation for the farmers or is, is there anything there in that or, you know, where will that answer come from? Is there anybody championing them politically or just opportunistically? Yeah. No, no. The, the, I mean, politically, <laughs> you know, the, the problem is with, you know, I, I'm going to use the F word, uh, fascists. The problem with fascism is that, you know, the, there's always like a united front kind of idea. So so people really want to desperately unite behind the Congress party as like the only alternative to um, the BJP, the Modi party. But um, the Congress party has been really weak. Uh, you know, they, they're the ones who, they launched many of these neoliberal reforms in the 90s. You guys know the story. This is not a, this is not a surprise to anybody with any political um, experience anywhere. But... Um, so the party level, you know, the, the CPI, the Communist Party of India is still strong in, um, I'm CPM. I should be careful, <laughs> you know, how communist parties are. The CPIM, yeah. okay. CPIM still has like considerable strength in Kerala. Um, not so much uh, in, uh, in the uh, all India level. But um, the Punjabi uh, farmers, the, I mean, the protests in Punjab and Haryana, 
they've uh, been organized by these farmers unions and the farmers unions are very strong they're very left and they're very co politically conscious and they had been organizing uh, around these farm bills from before like from the sum the previous summer like they knew they were coming and they were organizing against them so the protests are partly so politically strong and well organized because um, the farmers do have a very solid organization um, and it's solid in lots of ways like they're they're good at making alliances they're good at um you know they're good at addressing contradictions which exist you know with caste and and gender um you know kind of contradictions within the movement but they they are um well organized and and in that sense you know that's another reason why they've had the staying power that they've had um did you have one other question you were, you were saying who how are they organized politic politics? Well, it just was a reflect. No, I, I think you've you've kind of dealt with it, you know. Um, and I mean, I suppose this is in some ways a, a sort of an introduction for our listeners who wouldn't have the, the knowledge of it. I mean, India is nearly three times on its own, it has nearly three times the population of the EU. And we don't get to talk about it enough. And that's why it was a real pleasure for us to have you on to give us a, an intro to it. And uh, you were so good. We'll be having you back. I'd like to hear more about Kashmir anyway, uh, as well as others. And I think Mick has a few ideas too. No, I mean, actually, I was just going to mention Kashmir as well, because if you're in, listening to what's going on in the European Parliament, uh, the anti-China rhetoric uh, has been registered up of late and... Uh, but you'd never hear them talking about uh, challenges and problems in India and Kashmir hardly ever uh, gets a mention mm -hmm. in here. And uh, it'd be interesting to get you back and get your thoughts on exactly uh, what's going on there and where it's going and uh, what, we, what kind of outcomes uh, we can expect from it. Uh, but listen, uh, we, we'll um, thank you very much um, for coming on and um, if it's okay with you uh, we'd love to have you back uh, to kind of uh, tease out these things a bit more sure yeah of course perfect well, thanks, I, thanks very, very much, much Justin. Justin. Thank you. thanks a million bye, -bye. bye. and keep up the good work <laughs> you too <laughs> thanks <laughs> thanks a million bye bye, -bye. bye, -bye. Okay.